Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Robin Gaster. Robin is the CEO of Incumetrics and a visiting scholar at George Washington University Institute for Public Policy. And he's the author of a book called Behemoth, Amazon Rising, Power and Seduction in the Age of Amazon. So welcome, Robin, to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Russell. I, I appreciate being here. Okay, so before we get to the book, I just wanted to take a closer look at the title because I really liked the expression behemoth. Mm. That's a great word. And I thought, I'm not quite sure what it actually means. I thought, I know it means big, but what does it actually mean? So, of course, you go straight to Wikipedia, and I'll just tell you what I found. So it says, behemoth is a beast from the biblical book of Job and is a form of the primeval chaos monster created by God at the beginning of creation. And uh, Behemoth is paired with the other chaos monster called Leviathan. That's the sequel. Uh, yes, I see. <laughs> and then, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> and then a Jewish rabbinic legend describes a great battle which will take part at the end of time. They will interlock with each other and engage in combat. With his horns, the Behemoth will gore with strength. The fish Leviathan will leap to meet him with his fins with power. Their creator will approach them with his mighty sword and slay them both. Then, from the beautiful skin of the Leviathan, God will construct canopies to shelter the righteous, who will eat the meat of the behemoth and the Leviathan amid great joy and merriment. In the Haggadah, behemoth's strength reaches its peak on the summer solstice, around 21 June. At this time of year, behemoth lets out a roar that makes all animals tremble with fear and thus renders them less ferocious for a whole year. As a result, weak animals live in safety away from the reach of wild animals. This mythical phenomenon is shown as an example of divine mercy and goodness. Without Behemoth's roar, animals would grow more wild and ferocious and hence go around butchering each other and humans. And so, you know, maybe we'll get on to whether or not Behemoth is protecting us against other <laughs> wild animals. And maybe we could discuss whether God or even the regulators you, you, you could carve realize, it up for us. You realize <laughs> the Amazonian significance of the summer solstice this year. The summer solstice will be Amazon's prime day. So there we go. You picked it out perfectly. So there we go. The really, you know, this is uh, a Kabbalistic uh, mystery. which <laughs> has <just> been <laughs> unfolded for us. So, okay, so let's go right back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, and, and you can explain to me how Amazon first came into being. Uh, Amazon is, you know, it's a, it's, it, it started as a, a, a small uh, idea from Jeff Bezos, founded by Jeff Bezos and his wife, he was in, in the New York financial markets, and he got interest in the internet, and he decided to start an online store. And the story is that he chose books because they're easy, and they're easy in a couple of ways. They're fairly light. They're easy to ship. They're uniform, so you don't have to, you know, one book, one, my book looks exactly the same every time. There's no, there's no quality issues here. And... Um, most important, he could source them all ex very easily. There were two big wholesalers, and they would ship to him just like to any other bookstore. So sourcing, which is a, which is a beast, if you're trying to do, you know, international transactions or buying stuff from China, it's all very complex and difficult. Um, for this was a very easy solution. So that's where that's where Amazon came from. Uh, it was it was very practical. Had nothing to do with books. 
So, so Bezos has no idea what this is going to evolve into then? No, no one did. It is fair to say that at key moments, Bezos has, and I, I am not a fan of the great man theory of history. My entire academic training is against it. Mm. So I'm, I'm, and I am ideologically opposed as well. All that being said, at key moments in time, Bezos has looked deep into the future and made changes and taken limited but significant risks in, in ways that I find quite impressive. And how did it evolve then over time? When did it start to sort of become the, you know, where you could start to see what it was going to become? I think there are different pieces of it, you know. So if you think about Amazon's advantages, uh, it decided to become a, a low-cost provider very early in the 21st century, around 2000, 2001, 2002. Before then, it was kind of a boutique. It, was a, it just marked up books, and it marked them up satisfactorily, and it passed them on. And instead, it decided to become the equivalent of Walmart. It was very in influenced by Walmart and Costco during these years. So item one, it, goes, it, it decides it's going to be a mass marketer, not a boutique marketer, and that the way to do this is through low prices. Right, so that's item one. Item two is that it dis it really wanted to move from being the the bookstore to being the everything store that it is today. When did it make that decision? Do you know? Yes. Um, so around 1999, it made an extraordinary decision. Really, I mean, it was running an online store, which is you know like a, like anybody's retail store. And it made the decision to open its platform to anybody. And this is, this is remarkable. This, this, this is like, you know, Harrod saying, well, okay, Selfridges, you can come in here and you can sell on our platform in our building. We'll give you some space. We'll charge you 15% and we'll compete with you. I mean, there have been markets and souks for thousands of years. But this is different. This is a retailer saying to its competitors, come on in. And in, and in doing so, it, it made the everything store possible because it didn't have to manage everything. It's impossible to be a retailer f with all the goods in the universe. It's just, it, it, it's overwhelming. So today, 60% of the gross volume on Amazon's retail platform is not Amazon sales. It's sales by third parties. So it extended its catalog, if you like, to the point where now you can find everything. It is the everything store. And this is what you call the marketplace, right? This is, well, this, this is what is they the call marketplace. the marketplace. They call it the Amazon marketplace. And it became very profitable. But, but most importantly, it extended the catalog quickly, far faster than Amazon. In... Around 2002, 2003, they made another enormous and very surprising decision. So uh, I'm sure you're well, ahead, well aware of you know, management theory, which for the last 40 years probably has, ha, ha, can be summarized as stick to your knitting, right? You find out what your core competence is and you do that and you hire out everything else. That's... that's what, that's management 101. 
in 2001, Amazon's logistics system was creaking badly. They had a couple of warehouses. They had some software. They had horrendous problems uh, during the Christmas season because they were growing so fast. So they, they got the growth going, but then they had to deliver and it was difficult. So, you know, management theory would say, fine, let's hire it out. We'll hire UPS or we'll hire FedEx or somebody and they can be our logistics arm and that's it. No problem. And Amazon did not do that. They decided to build their own logistics business. And their logistics business is as big and as good as FedEx or UPS today. Better for delivering packages. But this was an extraordinary decision. For 10 years, Wall Street complained because there were no profits. All that money went into building warehouses and data centers, but pr primarily warehouses, which are expensive, you know, and you have to hire people. Um, so Amazon made a very conscious choice to take a gamble, big gamble. The net result though was, instead of being a taker of UPS prices, Amazon's um, logistics network is now a key defensive moat. It's a huge lever that it uses everywhere. Look, Amazon wouldn't have bought a pharmacy business if it didn't have logistics because it can deliver can deliver pharmacy to anybody, anywhere, in a couple of hours. What's the moment Amazon gets away? When's the moment that you can no longer compete with it? Because I can't see anybody now breaking into their market and becoming another Amazon or squashing them. So, so is that the yeah. moment? No, it's about, about 10 years later. It's about 2010, 2011. In, in the early 2000s, Amazon introduced a new program called Amazon Prime. And Prime uh, was also a gamble. Some of the people on the financial side of the business thought that, that this was nuts. That you were offering customers unlimited free shipping in exchange for $79 a year. And um, there, was, there was risk. You know, you could, this could have gotten out of hand. They could have found themselves buried by uh, delivery costs. But they managed it okay. And I, I always thought it was a decision that they could back out of. I mean, if they had to, they, they could have just abandoned it or raised the price or something. Anyway, but around 2010, they do something different. So 2010 is really the birth of Amazon Video. And it's a sign that Prime is not just going to rely on free shipping. It's going to offer all kinds of other benefits. And as those benefits come online, Prime takes off. At the time, Prime had about 10 million members. Today, in the US, Amazon, and Amazon Prime has 140 million members. Now, there are only 125 million households in the US. Right? So what this did was create customer superglue, right? This magnetically attracts customers into the Amazon ecosphere because you've already paid for shipping to Amazon, right? You join, your shipping is free. It's not free anywhere else necessarily. And customers now, over the last few years, they've moved their product search away from Google into Amazon. 
and Prime is a big deal. So now, now what you've got is you've got a company with all the customers and therefore with all the sellers. There are 6 million sellers on the platform. So they have all the goods. They have the best distribution network. And they have a relentless messianic obsession with the customer, which means that the customer experience is excellent, right? And, and on top of that, they invented a couple of other things that really made a difference. Most importantly, reviews. When you go online, you look for reviews. Yeah. And when you go to Amazon, that's where all the reviews are. You know, in the book, I looked up a couple of things. There are thousands of reviews on Amazon and then like 27 on Walmart. It's, it's not trustworthy. There's not enough data there. So reviews have a really interesting impact, it seems to me. The combination of Amazon's focus on price and on reviews as the mechanism of discovery, how you find products, means that Amazon is essentially the anti-brand. Anti, Amazon is the destroyer of brands. I mean, I think there's probably a, you know, some Norse god who could be invoked, <laughs> invoked at this point. Because, you know, the point of brands is to create a, a relationship between you as the customer and the brand owner such that you're favorably inclined towards the brand even before it, it exists, right? Before any, any sale occurs. And so that you're, you can be persuaded to buy more easily, more expensively, with less cost. That's the point of brands. But Amazon doesn't give a shit about any of that. They don't care. What they care about is price and discovery. And none of your brand relationship is going to really matter on the platform. Almost all, 70% 70, 70 plus of searches on Amazon are not branded searches. They're searches for underwear, not Hanes, right? So, you know, all Hanes' careful brand management really doesn't matter, does it? For me, what a brand is, it's something I can trust. It's, right. it's all about trust, that I'm going to get a product of a certain quality that I can right. rely on. And you're right, through Amazon, I get there through reviews. Exactly, exactly. So it gives me it gives me sort of the same thing as a brand gives me, but it also gives me a reassurance that I'm not being done on price. That's right, because you can compare the prices very easily. And also, I mean, you know, the reality is we know that all that branding that we experience out there in the in the world is basically BS. I mean, you know, we're being fed a bunch of stuff. And the great thing about Amazon reviews when they're not fake is that they're real people. And you can tell yeah. they're real people working with this particular product, telling you what's good and bad about it. That's incredibly valuable. So all of this means that Amazon has created this ecosystem with all of the customers and all of the sellers, because there's no point in being a seller anywhere else at the moment. And with the delivery and, you know, and pricing that, that really is very attractive. So, as you said earlier, I, where it's established, Amazon is immovable. I, I just don't, I think everything that Target and, and um, Walmart are doing is defensive. 
they're, they're just trying desperately to hold on to the customers they got. I mean, they're trying little things here and there, but... But how did the competition let them get away from them? Was there a problem with finance at the time? Was finance hard? Did, did Amazon have money and they didn't? What yeah, was... because, because Amazon didn't pay dividends and Amazon didn't care about Wall Street, never cared about Wall Street because Bezos owns a dominant share of Amazon. Uh, the next six biggest shareholders, when I looked, were all passive investment funds. So there's no, there was no pressure. I mean... Wall Street screamed about, you know, no profit, no profit. How can you possibly invest in this company? Uh, and Bezos just said, well, we're in it for the long haul. And the, the investors we want are long haul investors. And so it was not under pressure. They had tapped the financial markets very judiciously just before the dot-com crash in 2001. So they had money in the bank. It was a tough time for them, but they had enough money to write it out and my impression is that they made money, but they spent it all. They spent it all on building their position. And, you know, realistically now, could Walmart, I mean, Amazon increased its warehouse capacity by 30% last year. <laughs> so it's 35 million feet of square of, of warehouse and they're accelerating further. Could, could Walmart do that? I, I don't think so. I, think, I don't think it's in their DNA to do something so radical or to move so quickly. Um, and the money, I don't know if the money, I mean, they are, Walmart is the biggest, you know, biggest company in America. Surely, had they really, really determined that they were going to go head to head, maybe they could. But the other thing is, Amazon is not just retail, is it? Amazon's the biggest cloud computing company in the world which spun out of its, its own needs, right? Just like Marketplace, in a way, spun out the capability to sell things on Amazon's platform from Amazon's own development. To compete with Amazon, you don't have to have a cloud computing business, do you? No, you don't. You might want the revenues from it. It right. does spin off a lot of money. I mean, it's, a, it's quite profitable. Though Amazon has other sources of profitability. I, I'm actually thinking about a piece now which talks about how Amazon has entirely an entirely new model of retail. I mean, the old model of retail is really simple, isn't it? Look, you find stuff that you want to sell. You find a market to sell it into. You advertise it through newspapers or television or radio, perhaps now Facebook, and you serve your customers. That's a simple model of retail. Amazon's model is nothing like that. <laughs> Amazon's model says, how can we create a, a how can we create a dominant position? And the and the answer there is, well, you have very low prices. And how do you have low prices? Because you find different ways, different revenue streams that can go into your coffers other than just from the customer. So Amazon has fees from Marketplace. Um, I think there are about $80 billion worth of fees from Marketplace vendors last year. Walmart doesn't have any of those, right? Walmart is just your old-fashioned, okay, we buy it cheap, we sell it dear, that works. Amazon says, well, you know, we can take that $80 billion and we can take the $20 billion that we're getting from our Prime members 
and we can build an advertising business that is eating Google and Facebook daily and growing at an astounding rate, now we can take that 30 billion and we can use all of that to subsidize the cost of our retail. So our retail, and, and then we can ask our vendors to start paying for advertising too. Just like they pay for shelf space at Walmart or they pay you know, to advertise their brands out in the world, well, now they're paying Amazon to advertise them. So it, it's a far more complex model of, of retail where you take revenues from all over the place and you deploy them strategically to undercut prices in key areas that you want to expand into. Um, and I think it's an entirely new model. I don't think people have thought this, have, have even you know, figure this out <laughs> because Amazon is so secretive about its, uh, about everything, but especially about its finances. You know, I think it's, I cannot believe that the SEC allows Amazon to publish its revenues by business segment and not enforce uh, publishing its expenses by business segment. So they're not, they're just not aligned. Is there a, analogy to be made then between Apple and Amazon because the marketplace that Apple has is the App Store. Yeah. And the uh, and the other thing, that, the other big revenue stream they're able to charge for is iCloud. I don't know how much that brings them in. I but, don't think uh, iCloud is the big deal. I mean, I think it's devices plus the App Store. Right. Really is what, is what works for Apple. Yeah, there's certainly similarities in, you know, you create your own walled garden and you and you have enough customers in there, happy to be in there, right? That you can charge an entrance fee to anyone who wants to sell to it. I, I do mm -hmm. think Apple is going to run into the Apple's antitrust problems are much worse than Amazon's. And so, why is that? Um, because uh, Amazon, Apple is clearly keeping everybody out, right? If you don't pay your thirty percent fee, which is a pretty high fee you cannot sell and you cannot sell uh, worse still you cannot sell your your app outside at the app store and have it work on uh, on the ios devices so the, that's not and that's not the case for amazon at all i mean amazon will say well we charge a 15% commission that doesn't seem unreasonable um, and uh, if you want to buy somewhere else fine Go and buy somewhere else and uh, use it somewhere else. We don't care. Just come here when you feel like it. It seems pretty different. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, there's nobody forcing. There, there, it is true that Amazon has from time to time, well, Amazon used to have a formal uh, part of its uh, operating agreement with, with sellers that they could not sell at a lower price anywhere else. And... Uh, there was pressure, especially in Europe, because this meant that effectively, if I if I'm selling a product on my own on my own website, and I'm not paying Amazon's fifteen percent fee, but I'm not allowed to sell it for cheaper, right? So that that's a restraint of trade, fairly clearly. So Amazon has stopped doing that, but there are many things they can do to put their thumb on the scale without actually kicking the table over. Um, that you know, so they can downgrade your place in the search 
you know, in the search results, if you're not on the front page, you're screwed. If you can't buy, you can't win the buy box, your revenues are going to fall off the table. So they can do lots of things more quietly. And I think the net result is the same. And it's possible the antitrust people will have some joy there, but I think it's unlikely. It's very hard to prove. And also, I suppose the sellers are almost policing themselves because they're paranoid about what it takes to get into the buy box. Well, and not not only that, I mean, it's a Kafkaesque world uh, over there in the on the marketplace. You know, you can get booted for anything, and and if you if you you know the, all of these sellers have built these businesses. I mean, it it it's like you know a roller coaster isn't it i mean you are flying through the air at amazon if you win the buy box suddenly there's potentially 140 million people banging on your door and and you're doing well right <laughs> and then the bad actors come around and then amazon says well you know two of your guys didn't like what they got and they, you didn't respond properly so we're going to suspend you and you say well which two? And they say, well, we won't tell you that. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, that's a, that's a hypothetical example, but there's massive complaints among the sellers, but they don't have anywhere else to go. So it's very much the wild west. You, you make your money while you can, you hope to deal with the inevitable crises, mostly caused by Amazon or caused by black hat competitors of which there are many. What do you mean, black hat competitors? I didn't... Um, there are bad actors out there uh, who use a number of different techniques to essentially knock competitors out. You know, it, the, the drop-off between first, second, and third rankings in a, in a category is pretty severe. And so if you can get, your, get, you can get the top guy knocked off for a week or two, it makes a big difference and and because algorithms remember things um once you've been gone for a couple of weeks then the then the current number one is likely to uh retain their spot so you know it's like a it's really like wrestling i mean honestly it's mud wrestling really and you know you have counterfeiters to worry about you have knockoff artists and you have amazon itself um i don't know if you've come across Jason Boyce's book or his testimony, but he tells a very convincing story about how Amazon chased him out of three successive businesses by stealing them. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's not a lot in terms of Amazon's overall scale, but for the person on the receiving end, it's devastating. They seem to not care very much about anyone except the customer. And my goodness me, they love the customer. Well, it's, a, you know, I, in the book, I talk about Amazon as um, a sort of secular version of the Jesuits. You know, if you think about it, that most big companies and most small companies, most, most, most companies, they, they want you to comply, to go along with whatever the culture is and those sort of spoken and unspoken rules of the place. And you're basically supposed to comply. And, and Amazon doesn't care about that. They want you to commit. They want you to be a missionary. They want you to see yourself as part of a very small, scrappy team that is fighting hard for customers, on behalf of customers. And they have this obsessive focus on that. 
And the sort of converse of that is that they really just don't care in, in a, almost a moral way about collateral damage. Collateral damage doesn't matter because you are serving the one prime directive that really does matter. And that's the customer. And, you know, this was okay when Amazon was small. But Amazon has 1.2 million um, employees in the US now. It will be bigger than Walmart in a couple of years. It is clearly the company with the leading mind space in the world. You know, if you think about the most important company in the world, if you had to pick the most important company in the world, I think many people would pick Amazon now. And think of that, that's 25 years from being a tiny bookstore. And it got there through this obsession. But it, you can't keep being that obsessed. It's now, you're now this 800 pound gorilla stomping around and treading on cars and things. And, you know, it, eventually you have to take into account the enormous scale of your actions. And you can see kind of little bits of it. I mean, you could see it in, in Bezos's departing shareholder letter where he talked about making Amazon the best employer company in the world, the best employer in the world, or their new commitment to, you know, to go green. There, there are these little, you know, shoots and tendrils of alternative um, missions, but we won't, you know, I, I can give you a very simple metric which will tell you whether Amazon is actually taking any of this stuff seriously. And that is if they publish data about what goes on in their warehouses, you will know they are serious. And if they don't, then it's all BS. When you say what's going on in their warehouses, well, do you mean like accidents and so on? Accidents, but especially turnover. How right. many people stay? What's my my suspicion is that their turnover rate is over 100% annually. I don't know that. That all I do know is that from a lawsuit in 2018 in Baltimore that they that they fired a third of their workforce in the course of 13 months. So you, those are the ones they fired. You know how many will have left. Uh, so it's not a terrible estimate to say well, 100%. So. Did you see the movie Nomadland? No, I didn't heard about it, though. Yeah, I think this is the idea. I mean, I haven't seen it. Uh, got a very good write-up that I saw the other day, but it was talking about the seniors who work there. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think they, you know, everybody has to meet the same quota, you know. They yeah. don't make any allowance for being a senior. You still, and... I don't know if you uh, have ever been, but you should go. They do warehouse tours. They are absolutely fascinating. I took my kids. It was, I thought, they got to see what the world is becoming. And you can see these people that, that in a sort of fundamental way, Amazon is aiming to become automated here. You know, they're looking for the automated warehouse and in the meantime, they're just going to treat their humans as much like robots as possible. And they will turn them into facsimiles of robots to the best of their ability. But there's a tension here, right? Because you want there to be a large supply 
of lower paid jobs. Yes, in the it's a terrible. It's a. It's a, absolutely. It's a tremendous tension. You know, I talk to people I, when I talk to people on the left. I always say to them, "Well, fine, okay. So, um, tell me about the four thousand jobs in East Baltimore that you're planning to give people if or help people find if Amazon closed down tomorrow. By the way, that would pay twice the minimum wage. Tell me, tell me about those jobs." And they they have no answer to that. On the other hand, of course, you know, I I you know bash my Republican friends over the head with a terrible. I mean, you know, would they ever consider allowing their kids to work at Amazon? Right. And the answer is no, of course not. Well, at least not for very long, right? Not for long, right? You know, it's the the physical beating you take in those plants is brutal. But you know, manufacturing itself is not exactly gentle. I was very surprised reading your book. The kind of shifts that they uh, that they have to work. Oh, they've made it worse since then. Uh, it, they, they've now gone to what do they call it? A mega cycle, and the, where, where they, which they are trying to implement everywhere in America. And the mega cycle runs from 1 a.m. to 11 a.m. And the reason for this is so that they can do one-day delivery, right? right? So you can do overnight delivery. But imagine if, as a worker, you know, how do you manage a 1 a.m. to 11 a.m. schedule? I mean, what about your kids? Yeah. What about, I, I mean, it, it is so off. And so there's another data point. If they keep insisting on that, you know that the rest of the stuff is just PR. Because this is, what it is, is, this is exactly the kind of collateral damage I was talking about, right? It's efficient for them so they can have one day delivery and their customers can be happier, right? And the fact that is absolutely destructive to the social environment or to their, the families of the people that, who are working there, who cares? Another thing that very much interests me in your book, because it was completely different to what I was expecting, was that middle management, the pay rates for them are quite low, at least much lower than I had expected. And you say we expect them to not just sort of accept and buy into the philosophy, but you actually have to live it, you know, 100%. And yet for that kind of money? There are stock there are, options. Right, but stock go, doesn't go up forever, right? Well, <laughs> well, okay. so far so good, right? Uh, I, 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 have a, I have a terrible story to tell, which is that back in 2001, when I was in Silicon Valley briefly for a couple of years, and uh, you know, the, the, the bust had come, and I was thinking of investing some sum of money, I think it was 2001 in, in Amazon, sort of $5,000 or something like that. And I, went, and I went to my boss and I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, Russell, you know, a lot of people aren't sure Amazon's going to make it. And I haven't gone back to do the sums because I just don't want to. <laughs> I don't blame you. I, I, look, it is actually interesting. Um, I made the point, and other people have made the point, that Amazon doesn't care about Wall Street, right? That's pretty famously so. But now, indirectly, maybe it's becoming more important. So if you're, if you're bringing your people in on the basis of stock options, your stock has to keep going up. It's not going to work if it doesn't keep going up. So even though they are not hostages to Wall Street, 
they're hostages to their own employees in a certain sense. And so that's, you know, that's potentially a problem for them down the road because, you know, stocks do go up and down. I think the interesting thing about the middle management, there's two things to think about there, really. One is, as Bezos never tires of saying, Amazon is not for everyone. They hire tons and tons and tons of white collar people, and most of them wash out. There's no data on this, but the evidence seems to be fairly clear that most don't stick around um, for very long. And, you know, that's kind of like the Marines, isn't it? I mean, you know, you take in a bunch of people in boot camp, most of them wash out, you let them stay for a year or two, they, some more wash out, and what you're left with is the Marines and the Jesuits, right? You have, you're left with this organization of people who really buy into the positive side of Amazon, which is that it's very fast moving, it's very demanding, it's set up for smart people to operate at maximum efficiency, which is very rare in the working world. I mean, God knows, you know, they call Microsoft the rest home, um, you know, and, and so you can imagine that this, this is a tremendously stimulating environment and, it, and it's structured to allow these people to take responsibility and to invent and do new things endlessly. And the, the development and, and operation of teams at Amazon seems to be quite different than most places. And the, the importance of those semi-autonomous teams, not only for getting things done and for doing new things and for kind of being um, a country of startups, right? They've got right. these thousands yeah, yeah. of tiny teams. Then none of them really look like a big company. They just look like a small team of people, which is kind of like a startup. And that's, you know, that, that's always been Bezos's uh, motto. It's always day one, et cetera, et cetera. It, you know, so you can imagine that all of this is very attractive to really smart, really driven people. Even if the money initially upfront isn't so good, you know, maybe, but you get to do great things. You know, you get to work on changing the, right now, I imagine that the hottest place to be working in Amazon is in healthcare. And, you know, you get to be right there on the cutting edge of something big enough to transform healthcare everywhere. I want to just finish off with the employees there because yeah. what kind of people go into Amazon? Where do they get them from? Uh, so that's a good question. And the answer, of course, is everywhere. Um, it really depends what role you're thinking about. So uh, for web services, it's very technical. They're, they are extremely demanding in their interviews. You really have to be top of your game and to know a lot. I mean, you, you know, you have to be really good technically. For warehouses, they'll take anybody with uh, enough limbs or possibly <laughs> even not. Um, they tend to hire managers, it seem to, seems, um, straight out of uh, college. You know, so there's this level of low-level managers who are basically newbies out of college. So they buy into Amazon, I think. You know, they don't want any older people there. Um, uh, in the, you know, in, they had for a long time a kind of Ivy College fetish 
about hiring the smartest people they could find. And those, if you, I think if you do a look at the senior management, a lot of that, that's where a lot of them come from. But, you know, they've been hiring so much. Right. You know, last year they took on 400,000 people. How do you do that? How do you hire one person, right? Hiring one person is hard. How do you hire 400,000 people? And, you know, how do they, I mean, in part, of course, the answer is obvious because they do this annually at Christmas time. They hire a couple of hundred thousand people to work in the warehouses. Well, the answer is you de-skill the work to the point that you can learn it in five minutes. Right. But they're still, they're hiring, you know, they're, they're typically, when I've looked, there've been 30,000 open positions there. <laughs> And they're very, they are very, their hiring process is very picky. Even though they have all these open positions, they have a belief, which I don't, I think they've managed to retain, that every hire should be above average in the team. So you don't hire for an open space, you hire to improve the team. And there is an outsider who does an interview with that person and can veto. Hmm. always so the they're called bar raisers as in raising the bar right i mean there's a lot yeah, of hokey yeah, yeah. stuff there but it works okay so that's sort of where they come from which as you say is everywhere but i'm i'm looking at these really smart middle manager guys yeah and the israeli defense forces are famous for seeding you know startups throughout right. israel and I'm just wondering, is there the same thing going on with Amazon? I've noticed a pretty decent exodus in the last year. For example, the new team over at GameStop, which has gotten a lot of press recently with all the financial craziness around it. They're from right. Amazon. People do seem to be hiring from Amazon. What's fascinating is whether this will work because you know, Amazon is really about creating an environment and a process and a structure that works to accelerate innovation and give it enough resources and scale and scope. So I interviewed somebody who went to, uh, who had a fairly senior job at Amazon and he went to become director of, oh, director of innovation um, for one of the big drug companies. I think it was director of innovation in the Middle East and Africa or something. Anyway, and he, he was pretty clear that he wasn't going to get anything like the same level of innovation in that drug company as he was at Amazon, that, that the culture was different and the structure was different and it didn't, it wasn't so focused on finding new ways to solve problems. And um, you have to give Amazon credit for building building a machine that is for innovation. The company is designed to innovate in ways that I think are quite staggering. I mean, big companies like IBM are not designed to innovate. They have some innovation, but mostly they're there to sell product and to keep the engine moving down the tracks. And, you know, Amazon is not there for that. They, yes, they do that, but the objective is to serve the customer in new ways, better ways, make everything better. It's pretty powerful. Hmm. Speaking of innovation, 
America's healthcare system, at least from where we sit in Europe, we kind of look at it with some degree of horror. Yeah. And, and, it, and it just to us, it looks broken. Now, of course, perhaps mm-hmm. to Americans, you know, the European health system isn't necessarily something that they particularly would embrace. But I'm interested in the idea that Amazon might get into the healthcare business. Oh, they are. There's no doubt. So it- is, that, is that to pick off a bit that's particularly juicy, or are they trying to reinvent the whole thing? They're reinventing. Um, So there are a number of different pieces to this. They built Amazon Pharmacy, and they bought PillPack, which provides um, drugs to customers, right? Drugs to patients. You, You just order them online, and your doctor signs off their prescription medications. And Amazon Pharmacy is sort of similar except it's not for non-prescription drugs. I mean, that is to say, pill pack is one pharmacy. But I don't... So that's one place. Second place is in primary care. So Amazon has 1.2 million employees. They are self-insured, must be self-insured, that scale. So it's absolutely in their interest to figure out ways to serve those employees better and cheaper. And they've started, so they've started to build uh, a healthcare network, a network of primary care clinics, uh, many of them in warehouses, so that like the first level of, uh, of clinical activity can be taken care of in the warehouse or in a local area. They're building a pretty substantial telehealth operation. They've made arrangements for their employees to see the best specialists. They, they have no problem with building pathways into the existing structure. So all of this is very interesting, and, it, and there's certain pieces to it. But I think Amazon is going to eat healthcare from below. If you think about the way the healthcare is structured, healthcare is a pyramid. You know, the bottom is you have the clinic, the, the primary care, the GP, and then you have the specialists, and then you have special hospitals, and, you know, right at the top you have God or something. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's the traditional pyramid. It largely ignores the stuff that goes below the pyramid. Wellness, minor healthcare information, advice, um, tracking and monitoring chronic diseases, mental health, which is very poorly served in the current structure. All of these services can be integrated and delivered to you as a customer through Alexa in your home. This, is, this will be the, the sort of fundamental use case for Alexa. Alexa will be your gateway into the healthcare system. I'm absolutely convinced about this. And it'll be great. I it'll loathe great. Alexa. I loathe everything about Alexa. That was Alexa talking. That's hilarious. <laughs> I loathe Alexa because it's crossed the line for me from, it's, it's gone into uncanny valley for me. Uh, yeah, I, under, I understand. I understand. I mean, I love Amazon. I buy a ton of stuff on it, yeah, but, but I do not want something in my house listening to me. Well, when you find that you can get high quality healthcare through Alexa, that Alexa will do the testing, diagnosis, and monitoring that you need to keep your diabetes under control or your heart under control or 
to make sure that you're getting sufficient exercise or that your parents are moving around still. Mm. Um, and that Alexa will then make sure that you get to the correct portal into the healthcare system and that Amazon will take care of you by making sure that you get the best price and you get the best service as a customer. It's very attractive, very attractive. Uh, Alexa will be the gateway. Now, there may be others, and of course, you won't have to use it, you know, but um, you may find that the benefits of doing so are enormous, that you get cost benefits. So, you know, if you, if you imagine that you are an insured person or in the NIH, right? And, um, and you have diabetes and you insist on going to the doctor's office to getting, to getting tested and tracked. Eventually, you're going to be charged for that because you're taking out resources that you don't need to take out. You could do that yourself with a, with a, you know, a, a monitor and a, and, and a connection to your cell phone. It's not feasible to spend, re spend those resources because they're very expensive. To have you come in is an expensive proposition. Why, when you could, you could do all of that at home without having to travel anywhere as part of your daily routine or you know, every two days or whatever it is, I think you know, I find it very difficult to imagine that we will not do that. As with many things in healthcare, uh, I think actually in the future, this will be driven from below in a different sense, that this is the way we will help people who can't afford modern healthcare. You know, they can't afford a doctor or a doctor's office in the US. You know, the, you, you made the point that the US healthcare system is horrendous. Well, no, the, the US healthcare system is horrendous for those who don't have good insurance. The bottom right. third, that's terrible. But we can treat them through this. We can, we can help. We can, we can improve their health tremendously at, at limited cost. And that's where Amazon is going, I think. And, and then it becomes reasonable to do add-ons, you know, to move up the stack, if you like, into more, more lucrative areas and more specialized areas. But if Amazon owned the interface between the clinical system and the subclinical system, that would be very powerful. Scary, actually. Quite scary. And speaking of scary, I sort of had this sort of joke at the start about how God had carved up behemoth and... Mm. Could the regulators do so? But I wasn't clear, and maybe I should have been clearer. Really, I wasn't quite clear what the problem was with Amazon. And to the extent that there is a problem, I wasn't quite clear how any regulator could solve it without actually making things worse. You, you raise two good questions. Two good points. And I guess what I would say is, in general, we can no longer tolerate the level of collateral damage that Amazon is prepared to impose. And that's on their own workforce and on their sellers primarily. Amazon may not be a technical monopoly for multiple reasons, and it may be hard to apply traditional antitrust to it, but it's certainly dominant. It is certainly well beyond sort of first among equals in e-commerce. It's not that. It's, it's dominant. 
And with that dominance comes the capacity to, comes the need to make sure that it is treating everybody in the ecosystem fairly. And at the moment, I think the evidence is pretty good that it's not. It's not, it's not treating its sellers well because it doesn't have to. There is no alternative. So it under-invests in seller services. It under-invests in dealing with counterfeiting and black hats. And its justice system is a shambles. And it's secretive, right? It's completely secretive. The, the, problem, the other problem with Amazon is that everything we know about it is either leaked by Amazon or is scattershot anecdote because it doesn't tell us anything. And what it does tell us is mostly misleading. Um, so I think, it, I think there's just a different model here. This is, a, this is a huge dominant company. And I would say, you know, you said something about not wanting Amazon in your house. My, my view is that, you know, the privacy activists tell us that we have to have we have to defend ourselves against these big companies. We have to defend our private, our, our private activities. I think this is hopeless. <laughs> I, I think we are walking naked across the digital plane, you know, and any time any one of them wants to give us a colonoscopy, they just do. And I think the, the notion that we can fix that through better privacy is ludicrous. I mean, look at GDPR, right, which is there, which is... I mean, all that has done is annoy people by insisting that you go through this stupid screen every time you go to a website. Do you ever look at those options and say, oh, I don't think I'll allow those cookies? Of course not. So, fine. All right. The world is a naked place. But at least, if we're going to be naked, they should be naked too. It, it, we, we have grown up with 400 years of history in which corporations are, are by default secret from the East India Company onwards, right? Whatever they do is secret. And I would say that for the big digital companies in particular, but I'm being a sort of lefty, I would say for all the big companies, I think we should be demanding radically more transparency. If we, if we knew how much Amazon was paying for its labor, how many of them left, um, if we knew what the seller turnover was, if we knew how their algorithms worked, this information would limit Amazon in ways that I think are judicious without stopping it doing anything. But just to be looking at what it's doing and saying, oh, well, okay, I'm, <laughs> that's not going to look good. Right? Well, if it's not going to look good, it should be public. Why should Amazon be allowed to keep all this stuff secret? I think it's bad for all of us. It's bad for Amazon in the long run because it allows them to get away with stuff that they don't need to get away with. And it's bad for everybody who interacts with Amazon from a, from a production perspective. Let me let me try to see if I can put the counter case a, l a little bit. And, sure. and, we talked, and we talked about this slightly earlier. But you said that Amazon is, is, in a sense, trying to automate its warehouses, but, you know, robots are expensive and human beings are cheap, so it treats yeah. its employees effectively like robots. Yeah. Now, if we knew how they were treated, I think people, 
you know, are happy not to look, but if it's shown to them and it's clear, then people will get quite upset and they'll insist that it's stopped. And at that point, automation, you know, becomes... May accelerate. Well, may very well, may very well accelerate, and then, accelerate. and then and then and then it's it's a bit like having driverless cars. Well, gee, thanks for putting all these taxi drivers out of a job. That's right. So this is the, the you know, but this is also at the core of every argument against every union, against every health and safety measure, right? That's been introduced. I mean, we'd still have child labour and and women in the mills. Uh, on that argument, because yes, it it led to higher wages and led to more automation. Yes, well, automation is coming either way. I mean, I you know, it's not like not doing this is going to make things stop in their tracks. I mean, you know, McDonald's is automating for God's sake, and yeah. uh, we are going to, as a society, have to figure out. What in the world? I, before I wrote this book, I wrote a book about the big, the gig economy, uh, and I didn't like it enough to publish it. I wasn't mm. happy with it. But I'm very sympathetic to the notion that the world is gigifying rapidly, and that our traditional employment relationships are under severe threat. And there, that's true at Amazon, and it's true. You know, Amazon has plenty of gig workers, lots and lots of gig workers. And we need to have, uh, we, we're going to need to change what we do. But like we're going to probably going to need a basic income. I mean, I can't in the end see any way around this. If you automate all, you know, low end jobs, well, either you're going to wait for the pitchforks or, or you're going to find <laughs> some way to pay them off. I'm mean, bluntly. What else, what, what alternatives? Are, this notion that you're going to retrain them to be computer techs is just utterly fucking ludicrous. Sorry for the language, yeah, but it's yeah, just, yeah. I, I listened to people in the White House telling us how they were going to, you know, provide training for coal miners and they were going to enter the digital age. And I'm looking at them and thinking, have you ever met a coal miner? I mean, let's be real here. And you know, also yes. most of the people you're talking about are not coal miners. No, 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 no. And, you know, I do a lot of work on education and, and people keep saying, well, you know, we need better education. We need vocational education. Well, yeah, but there's no sign that's the solution either yet. I'm not seeing but, that. But UBI is I'm, we're kind of moving off Amazon yeah. and maybe we shouldn't move too far. But I agree with everything you've said about the dangers of automation or, or the problems that automation will bring. But UBI seems like it will bring its own problems by the sack load as you sort of... Yeah, though the evidence is, you know, the evidence, there were some um, quite extensive tests of UBI done in the United States under Richard Nixon, of all things, and in Canada at about the same time. And, And the evidence suggests that UBI did not actually uh, affect propensity to work all that much. I mean, uh, and that the people who left work were primarily married women and teenagers. Those were the people who didn't work as much, but that other people found that they could use this to improve their earnings by taking better jobs. So, Right. I mean, that's quite interesting. You should read um, 
you should read David Goodhart oh. uh, about this kind of subject. He talks a bit about uh, working mothers in particular mm-hmm. and whether they're being obliged to work when they would rather not. And it's an incredibly sensitive issue, of course. Yes, it is. Yes, it but is. His, but his contention is, which he expresses it you know, far more delicately and far more intelligently than I'm able to sort of summarize, is that a lot of the rules in the workplace are being written by what he would call the, the cognitive elite. Absolutely. So the rules are serving women who are at the top end of society. Yes. But perhaps the women who are at, you know, in the lower third are being just completely forgotten about. That's yeah. his thesis. So, so you and he should maybe would, get together would, sometime. Yeah, I should. I'd like to. Well, I'll read his stuff and and see if we see if we can connect. Yeah. Um, well, we should probably wrench ourselves back to Amazon. To <laughs> well, I think we. I think we've just about come to an end but i suppose the last question is i mean can anyone compete with amazon or is or is it finished so it depends where and it depends in what so if you're talking about e-commerce in the u.s no it's over game game's done but elsewhere in the uk and germany amazon is very strong because they got in first the question for amazon is can it show that it can dominate a market where it did not have first mover advantage. And the place to watch is Poland. They, they just went into Poland and there is a very strong established domestic competitor there that owns half the market. And it will be absolutely fascinating to see if Amazon can, can win there. If Amazon can win there, then that's a big signal. The other place to watch is India. You know, Amazon's out of China. India is a big, you know, is, is who big, are the who are the players in India? Well, everybody. <laughs> um, the the Chinese have tried to come in, but um, the Indians are very uh, opposed to that. The, they are more nationalist. They're making it more difficult for all foreign companies. Walmart is there. They bought Flipkart, uh, an Indian company, a while ago. Amazon is spending a lot of money in India and is trying all kinds of innovative ways to build an Indian e-commerce empire that doesn't look like America much at all. I mean, they're really interesting, small pieces about what they're doing there. It's just unclear that the Indian government is gonna allow any foreign company to dominate. And if I had to guess, I would say no. I interesting. would say that they won't, they won't be able to. So, and then there are other areas. I mean, Amazon is still do- the dominant cloud provider, but the others are catching up. Microsoft in particular, Amazon had a big lead and now it's being sort of chipped away. But there's no natural moat there, is there? No, no. Now now it's a pretty open competition. You know, delivery doesn't matter. Existing customers don't help you much. You get scale advantages. Um, You know, Amazon is working hard. Now they're starting to design their own chips in order to get yet another tiny edge. What about in Africa? Are they they doing anything in Africa? (sighs) I really don't know enough. I wouldn't. I don't want to speculate because I. It, it it the interesting place to look in Amazon. It's in in Africa. It seems to me is, you know, microcredit and um, digital credit is very very big there, and digital banking, phone banking is a big deal. I do wonder if that won't be a test, a, a useful test place to be 
testing digital finance projects. And it would not surprise me at all for Amazon to get into that. I mean, they have a bunch of finance projects. They're not very high visibility or they don't seem to be very important. They're more to support sellers, provide financing for, for vendors, that kind of stuff. Not really consumer oriented. So they haven't really gone there. And I think it's probably because it's so regulated. They could. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you know, insurance by Amazon have a pretty good ring? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy, you know, or <laughs> Bank of Amazon. I mean, I'd rather have that than Bank of America, probably. It's, it is geographical. I mean, you, you are already living in, you know, Amazon land and so am I, but not necessarily the rest of the world. I'm living in Amazon land and, and I suspect nobody now can come in to take over. Right. But, but similarly, you know, Amazon will never amount to anything in China. And it's interesting yeah. what you say about India. I'd not, wouldn't yeah, completely bet against India them there. Big, but... plum, big plum out there. And, but I think it, I, it's going to be hard. It's not yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank you so much for your time tonight. That was well, really, really interesting. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been terrific. Uh, a lot of fun. And um, I hope you get to edit out all the bad bits. <laughs> thank you, sir. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Well, that's the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, do please join me for the next episode. And if you have the time, please do recommend me to your friends. And a share on social media, and maybe a review on iTunes, really helps my guests get the audience they deserve. Goodbye for now.